Hello, I am Suset K. Faber. Hi, I'm Casey. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lore, is the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Suset K. Faber, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Again, I don't think I have anything to plug because I am paid for a lot of my work time in a way that does not allow me to plug anything. But I would say that uh, I am on the internet. I've been on this show before. I will once again reiterate that I am a trans person in a kind of person, a person in a very unique kind of situation in that I've been trans since like 2006. The world was made very difficult to me. I escaped to Japan where I have built my own life where I am gendered a lot less and I feel a lot better and I have very supportive people around me, but that I still have not been able to transition and I uh, have been made informed by other trans people uh, in the past few years that my perspective on that is somewhat important for highlighting the fact that not everybody who is trans can actually transition. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I don't know. I feel like I, I don't have anything to say here because I have no perspective on it, but it sounds bad. I am in a great situation and it's, it's beautiful and nobody needs to worry about me. And the fact that I can talk about it means that I'm not in a bad place and I'm, I want to share that. That's good then. Yeah. I want to share that with other people like you. And then also highlight the fact that, certain reforms are needed to prevent cases like me from existing because I like where I am and I'm where I am for very personal reasons. Like a lot of trans healthcare is forced sterilization and I wanted kids. And so I made certain choices and I was in Indiana in 2006 and there was a certain path for me where I didn't control certain things and I chose not to do it. And so like I raise it because uh, I think that I can speak on it, but also I did not raise it for many years because I felt like people were just transitioning. Everybody else was happy and that there wasn't a place for it, but I was told by other people that I should talk about it more. And so I do try to raise it where I can. Yeah. And Casey, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Uh, sure. Yeah. My name is Casey, uh, topic Lords discord users, uh, probably know me as base case, uh, which is also what I am on end of every website where I can get that handle. And uh, I'm a designer and programmer in the Midwestern United States. Uh, and I'll plug, uh, this is not, I don't have anything to do with this, but I, I it's, it's sitting on my desk here. I'm going to plug uh, Australian treat Arnott's Mint Slice. Mm. Do they taste like Thin Mints? They do taste a lot like Thin Mints. I would say, I would say they are better than Thin Mints. It was, is it a cookie? It's a snack cookie. Yeah, here I can show you. I actually saved one. Uh, obviously, listeners can't see this, but um, I'm holding it up. I'm I'm an I'm an almost exactly statistically average sized uh, American adult male, and uh, so you can judge how big this is based on that. It's about about the size, like a mid-sized sedan. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's a thin mint, but it, there's like an extra layer of. Um, like York peppermint patty filling. Okay. That's that, that was actually going to be my other guess. Cause it looks like both. Yeah. From the outside. Cause it, you can't tell there's a cookie in there. Exactly. It's like the love child of a thin mint and a York peppermint patty. And they're, they're very good. We received it from uh, a neighbor who is from Australia and just came back from the holidays there. Yeah. I'm excited about that because like, I can't get thin mints anywhere in Japan, like the real ones, but we have Arnott's in like all of the import stores here in Japan mm. because of like, you just go up, right? Like there's just a lot of crossover of snacks and stuff from Australia to Japan. So like I am looking forward to looking 
uh, for that in an import store in my area. Yeah. Yeah. Get on that. They're, they're crazy good. There was like one season where I saw the Girl Scout cookie like cookies in the supermarket, just on the shelf, Hmm. which you almost never see. And my understanding is that there's like a gentleman's agreement among, you know, cookie manufacturers that you don't, you don't copy the Girl Scout cookies (laughs) because you're depriving the Girl Scouts of their income, of their hard, hard earned child labor income. Yeah. Is that, is that just like, uh, people are being polite about it or like, do they get sued by the Girl Scouts? If yeah. They... <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you can, if you can patent a cookie does, and if so would, when would the patent expire? Probably 50 years ago. Um, but I, I have to wonder, like, I haven't seen them again since. And I have to wonder, like, did like a CEO just get a swirly? Do they just like, <laughs> I mean, or worse, are they like unpeopled, like in some way, like, yeah, who knows? Um, so, uh, I actually know this in terms of like, um, law, you can't actually copyright or patent ingredients that those are all considered trade secrets. So like the secret to Coca-Cola is considered a trade secret. They keep it in like a vault and you can't actually have it, but they have to protect it like that because they can't publish it because they can't patent it. They can't trademark it. And they also, recipes are also not copyrightable, which is also why when you go on websites for recipes, they're like, my grandmother made this. And they, you have like five different paragraphs about the recipe before the recipe, because the recipe part can't actually be copyrighted. The, the, oh, but you can, exactly. you can own a copyright to like the whole, the whole yes, article because exactly. there's additional yes. writing in it. Mm. Right. Yeah. Are we ready to start on some topics? Yeah. Uh, Sishead Kayfaber, your topic is raising third cultural kids as a second cultural individual. Okay. So my, my first question for this is I would like to like level set and ask both of you, do you know what like third cultural kids are? I do. I don't. Okay. Jim, can you describe it then? Yeah. Um, a third culture kid, my understanding is that it is somebody who, um, was born to parents from one country, but then raised in a different country. So that they are kind of of both cultures. Right. Yeah. And there's a, there's an inclusive piece of this, right? Which is that they feel included to both cultures, but then there is an exclusive piece of this, which is also that they feel excluded from both cultures as not feeling fully part of either. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Topic Lord Mark is a, is a third culture kid, apparently grew up all over Asia uh, because uh, his dad was a uh, like a touring school administrator or something. Apparently, a lot of his friends were like Coca Cola yeah. people. Like if you're if you're on a track where you're an administrator of international schools in Asia, you have a lot of freedom between countries, and you can go to a lot of different places. Yeah, but you don't have a lot of places that you can like call home. Yeah, and so yeah, that that like a lot of people consider it to be like oh man, like army brats kind of thing, right? Like, right. Your parents were in the military. You grew up on a base in a country. But then there's also like you raising Mark there is sort of the more dominant case of just all the other random people that are not involved with the military that are in a situation where it's just like, I'm like an American, but I grew up outside America for the most part. And uh, the second piece of this is like as a second cultural individual, this has come up somewhat on the discord a little bit, but like I moved to Japan at 24 and I'm now 37. And I've lived my entire adult life in Japan. I had one job. I graduated from university late. I took five years to graduate. And then I had one job for like two years before I moved to Japan. I've never rented 
anything in the U.S. I've never rented a car. I've never rented a, an apartment. I've never done and taken out a loan besides a student loan in the U.S. Like my entire adult life has been in Japan, and so I'm not third culture. But then also, I have a very specific kind of perspective as somebody who has like not to say that my experience is better than other people in Japan, but just that like. My experience is quite formative in a way that's very different from people who come here for a few years and then leave. Yeah. And so, like, my thing about this is that, like, I don't like, and this came up with my partner recently, where she's like, my daughter's jap, like, our daughter's Japanese is behind slightly, and it, and the teacher told us directly, like, we think you're speaking too much English at home, which is insanity because the girl goes to school at eight o'clock. She comes to she comes home from school at like five thirty or six o'clock. And then she goes to bed at like eight o'clock. Like she's speaking Japanese throughout the whole day at school. Like she's getting some English. We, we try to do that, but it's just like, it's not the case that English is affecting anything. And it's just like the fact that she's really young. She was born in late March. The cutoff dates for everything in Japan are April 1st. So she's always the youngest person in her class. Right. And, but the, like, there's this perception that because she's not fully Japanese, that her problem is that like, oh, it's this third culture thing. Like you just don't feel connected. And like, as a, as a parent, I'm really conflicted on that because like the whole reason I moved to Japan, like part of it was, as I mentioned at the beginning of like, I'm escaping, you know, my family and what I perceived as what might've happened in the U S if I stayed there. And then also it's just like, I really like multiculturalism quite a lot. I just want to talk to lots of different kinds of people. I don't want to be around mostly white people. Like no offense to either of you, not to out either of you, but just like <laughs> my life is just, everything is better and much richer when you have more kinds of people around. And Japanese was the language that I happened to speak. And Japan was the place that I happened to be able to go. And uh, it it's weird because I don't know if my daughter will go for that. Like she may just want to be Japanese at a certain point, or she may just want to be American. She may not actually agree with what I've chosen for this. Right. Yeah. And so it's like, as you raise kids, like Jim, I guess this is probably a question for you is like, like how much do you think about or bank on whether or not your kids will have like your core values, not to say like values in terms of like equality, right? Like you want your kids to understand that like, Hey, don't hate black people. Right. But you also want your kids to like, even on the sort of the value questions that don't matter, you would like them to be compatible with you. Right. Like how much do we think about that as parents? Yeah. I mean, I I want to be able to get along with my kid, uh, but I'm, I'm, I would say much more interested in producing what I would consider to be a good person than a person who shares my interests, I guess. Yeah. And that's a good point. I think is that and that's part of why I'm not so like on top of my daughter for much of anything is that I want her to develop her own interests. Like if she doesn't play Mario for six months and then plays Mario Maker for two weeks straight, it's like, I don't care that much. And then by the same token, like whatever she chooses, I was in a position as a parent to be able to give her that choice. And so I will, I'll take credit for it either way Yeah, uh, is the magical thing. But then like, uh, yeah, I think that's probably a good way to go about it, but it is sort of a, a weird question. And then I'll, I'll pull in Casey here of like living within the U.S. Like it's very easy for people who have experience, lots of experience outside the U.S. to be like, we're so special. But also U.S. regional differences are so strong that like 
you can be a kind of third culture kid within the United States if you grow up in the right way in the United States. You, you move around a lot or you've just been different places as an adult for a while. And so it's like in terms of culture, like what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that definitely happens all the time, especially, um, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in a small town and we would have people move to town from, you know, like uh, I remember a kid in I think it was like fifth grade or something who had grown up in Southern California and he, you know, he had lived in America his whole life, but he was very different from all of the mostly rural farmer uh, types in my tiny little grade school. So, yeah, I mean, I think that I think that happens within countries as well as across countries, but I'm sure it's much more pronounced uh, across the way. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I, this is maybe not quite what your point was, but I wonder, you know, as a as a person who has never been to Japan, but has heard you uh, on the podcast and other people talk about sort of the culture around the language there. Do you think that if your daughter didn't have an American parent, uh, if both parents were were fully Japanese, but she was still the same age, still like the youngest person in her class and still having the same difficulty, would she be getting would she be getting flagged by the teachers or like would the teachers be hassling you about the language development in the same way or would they just not say anything or would they say something and their their belief about the reason for the development would be different i'm curious about your thoughts on that yeah and i think i think it would be the last like hypothesis is that they focus on specific pieces of this situation because they think that's meaningful but like I uh, was in a position to be able to teach like every age group for about four years. So I, I taught kids that were four and five and six. And I taught kids that were in middle school and I taught kids that were in high school and I taught elderly people and I talked to a lot of adults and, and it would be the case that they would probably flag something, but they wouldn't say that this is the reason that it would just be a kind of normal thing. However, I will raise that for bilingual kids, their initial language development does suffer slightly in both languages until they're about eight. And then at that point you get rocket fuel and you get like much better language development for both. And so Hmm. for, for me, this is a very annoying thing because like, you know, my, my partner is Japanese and, they want the best for our children and they're really worried about it. And they're like, you know, the teacher says this and I think that, and this is, uh, you know, she doesn't quite understand all the English yet. She doesn't quite understand all my Japanese yet. This is weird. And I'm like, you have to understand that she's not 100% Japanese, that she is third culture, that we're not raising kids like your friends are raising, unfortunately, or fortunately. So I need you to trust me on this, that if you can give this like two years, she's going to be either indistinguishable or ahead of everybody. And it's really tough to make that case because it relies on a lot of trust, especially from like my partner doesn't have any teaching experience or experience with, um, you know, like her English is very good. I speak English to her. She speaks Japanese back to me. We're in a very bilingual household and we just watch whatever's on TV. We don't ever care about what language it's in because we both understand both, but there's, it requires a lot of trust from me on the fact that like, I think I know early childhood development. I think I know the language teaching well enough to be like, you just need to like, just chill with me for two years. And I really promise that it's going to be fine. 
I also think, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a parent. And so this is all from an ignorant outsider's perspective, but like, especially over the last few years, I feel like I heard so much talk about like, it, it seems like childhood development people really have this pretty strict and, you know, maybe this is different from country to country. I'm, I'm sure it is to some extent, but experts seem to have this really like almost down to the week notion of like when milestones are supposed to be hit. And it's like, it's so concerning if it's not like, oh, your, your kid is exactly 720 days old and she knows 50 words, uh, but she's supposed to know 54 words. So that's like extremely concerning. And, and, and like, you know, I, I'm curious, since both of you are parents, I'm curious about your perspective on that. Cause it's just some sort of an, again, an outsider's observation. It, it seems like it's like way more like tight than I would have thought. Maybe. So I don't know. I don't know what the world says about this, but we're in the Bay area. And when we talk to like doctors and psychologists about where Winston should be, they're like, yeah, he's going to be fine. <laughs> it's like crawling. That's not a, that's not a milestone. Like, don't worry about it. That's good. I mean, that's intuitively that, that feels like the right attitude. Like, don't worry about it. They'll, they'll get there. If they, if they eventually don't get there, then, you know, we'll figure it out. Yeah. yeah. And the, the thing that I notice as somebody who like took early childhood development classes and is in the same boat as Jim to talk to like doctors about it and stuff is that like, it does feel like there's a very tight windowing of things on like a timeline. But the thing that you actually do as a parent or a teacher is you reverse it and you don't put the milestones on the timeline. You think about the timeline in terms of those milestones. And so yeah. it's about when does my child begin to start to crawl? When does my child begin to start to walk? When do they use one word? When do they use two word phrases? When do they begin to use sentences? And you can, you can really accurately judge early childhood development because it does happen so consistently in stages based on things that you see them able to like be able to do and accomplish. And so for me, that's my frustration is that like, because my child entered first grade, like my daughter entered first grade, everything's been put on this timeline. I need everybody to understand that that timeline is bullshit. And that what I'm looking at is like how she interacts with other people whether or not she has empathy for other people and how she like navigates that um, her sentence structure. Can she do proper plurals in English, for example, or proper past tense in English? Like there's a bunch of different milestones that are much more important than any specific timing that will tell me exactly where she is in her development. Yeah. I think that's a lot more sensible than trying to work the other way around. Yeah. Especially with a, a cohort that can be almost an entire year apart in terms of right physical age, which seems insane to me as like a person now as like a parent, it's like grades should be like three month windows or six month windows or something that, that like a year is a long time for early childhood development. It's like my daughter acted like a five-year-old for half of first grade because she was functionally a five-year-old, even though she was six. Yeah. And so like if we had held her back a year, it would have been a lot better, but there was no way to know that at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Winston's birthday was like a week after the cutoff for kindergarten. So he's still in Montessori school and I think it's for the best. Yeah. Is he just totally dominating Montessori school? Oh yeah. He started like, as soon as he was the oldest kid in the class, like he started feeling, well, this isn't totally true anymore, but for a while he was seemingly enjoying school for the first time basically ever. 
And I think a lot of it was just like, he's good at it now, like compared to the work that pe- people are expecting him to do. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that does happen, right? Like a lot of early school is kind of BS, like, Hey, wash your hands. Hey, line up. And then like, when it comes to like, you know, putting a triangle on a verb or whatever, like if you're a little bit better at the latter thing, then maybe you like school more, right? Like, yeah, yeah. But like to this day, when we ask him uh, what he liked about school today, he says worksheets. He likes doing worksheets. Just any any kind, no specific subject. <laughs> well, presumably he means the kind they have him doing, which like it tends to be um, about reading and writing. So like, it'll be things in the format of like, here's a picture of a car and right next to it is, is C blank R and you're supposed to fill in the middle letter, for example. Right. And he, he likes that because it's, it's not like that difficult. He can do it. And so it's like fun for him, but it is, it is meaningful that he comes back from that, like with that report of the experience, because like when I asked my daughter, like what she did at school today or what she liked at school, She's like, oh, I climbed on the monkey bars. And it's like, I know that like six of your hours were not climbing on the monkey bars. Yeah. And and I want to know about that a little bit more. (laughs) Right. But it's meaningful (laughs) what children report back of their experience at school. Yeah, yeah. And he does definitely really enjoy that stuff too. Maybe more so. It's hard to say. But but like sometimes he says he enjoyed doing worksheets outside, which I don't know if does that mean like he's supposed to be playing with the other kids, but instead he was like, no, I want to do worksheets. It's recess and he's grabbing extra <laughs> worksheets off the stack. Yeah. <laughs> no, Montessori is, um, it's like half of Montessori is hippie bullshit. And like half of Montessori is like incredibly great curriculum. Mm-hmm. And so I would imagine what's happening is that they're giving him a choice of how he structures his time at school. Yeah. And he actually is choosing to do them outside maybe when other kids are choosing to play, but then also that like he is being given that option sort of explicitly. Yeah. And, and yeah, like Montessori curriculum is very good and, and it's all, I've tried to uh, pirate it actually. And I've not been successful because <laughs> it's very good. And I knew somebody who got into Montessori teaching after they left English teaching in Japan and they were like, yeah, you got to get your kids on this Montessori shit. It's great. Can you copyright a curriculum? It's just, it's so sort of closed and there's so little interest that there's like not a lot of great resources except for sending your kid to a Montessori school. And so if you want a pirate tenant, right, you can go on Pirate Bay and get it. If you want an entire Montessori school curriculum, you got to know a Montessori school teacher probably. Right. Yeah. I remember in the 90s, Courtney Love was complaining about how you know, people say you can find anything on Napster, but you can't find the obscure stuff. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yes. Uh, Casey, your topic is figuring out how to do creative projects that take longer than a weekend when you aren't getting paid for them. Yeah. So, so this is this is something that I've I've been thinking about basically for my whole adult life. I think probably I, I consider myself a creative person. But I, I don't really have a lot to show for it necessarily. I don't have a whole lot of like, um, you know, meteor personal projects. Uh, I've done a lot of creative work at jobs of various sorts and at school, of course. But my like free time personal creative projects are like 
basically, if it's the sort of thing that I could get done in the space of a game jam, uh, and I mean like one of the short ones that's like over the course of a long weekend, right? then I have a pretty good chance of getting it done. And if it's something that's bigger than that by more than like a week or two, then it's very unlikely that I will actually get anything done. So, so I've been, I've been, um, the, the reason I thought about this just recently is because we just did Pico Steve Mo, um, which you've, you've mentioned a few times on the show, Jim, that was a, uh, a really cool event that sort of was just generated through conversation in the topic Lords discord. And I wanted to make a game for it and I failed to make a game for it. A few people did finish games for it and all of those games are amazing. And I loved playing them and seeing them come together uh, in the, yeah, that was, that was a really fun, like that was a really fun month. I really enjoyed that whole event. Yeah. Just seeing it all come together, people throwing ideas around, seeing the works in progress and then seeing everything at the end, like just uh, amazing. Every, every single entry was incredible, especially considering that it was all done within a month. Um, and you know, uh, presumably in after hours, like I, <laughs> unless people were working on it when they were <laughs> supposed to be at their day job, which, you know, that's fine also with me. Yeah. You, you've got my, you've got my approval. Tell them I said it was okay. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but anyway, for Pico Steve Mo, I put together the, uh, itch jam page which took about half an hour of typing. And I put together a header JPEG, which took about two hours in Photoshop. And that is what I accomplished for Pico Steve Mo. And the both of those things I shipped uh, because they were uh, a less uh they were they were less work than a weekend. And right. the actual game I I bailed out on pretty quick. Yeah. Well, notably, you can make a game in a weekend. Or can you maybe maybe you can't. I can and I and I have. That's in fact the only kind of game that I've made. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the tough thing about these kinds of game jams is that like I know what I've made before and I know how long it took me and I know my current technical skill compared to where I was before. And the specific blocker is just like, I'm not gonna do these animations today. And it's like I I want my space taxi ripoff for what I want to do for Pico Steve Mo. But when I get down to it, it's like, like I have, I have two kids and I I'll mark that I am like meaningfully disabled in a way that takes up more of my time than it does for other people who are not disabled, but just like, I just didn't have the energy to put into it in a way that I had with previous projects. But I do think that there is a version of me where if I had, I don't think more time, but I just had, fewer things that took energy from me in different ways that I could have done like a lot more and like shipped something. And I think that's probably what Casey is also talking about. Sort of. I think, I think that there are a lot of people in obviously not your exact situation, um, but you know, similar situations, a lot of parents out there, of course, um, people with disabilities, intersections of those things who simply don't have the time or, you know, if they, if they do have technically like, the wall clock time, they definitely don't have the energy during the little time they do have to themselves to get stuff like that done. I really can't explain why I don't get more stuff like that done because I've deliberately constructed my, I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly privileged. I'm, I'm blessed to not have any, you know, major disabilities. And I have deliberately constructed my life to have a lot of free time in it. Like I don't, I don't, uh, I don't have kids. 
it's just me and my partner and our cats here. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of extracurricular activities. So like I definitely have the time and I definitely have the energy reserves to do more creative work. And the question is, uh, why, <laughs> why, why don't I have more to show for that? I guess in, in my case, personally, I think, I think Jim, you've talked about this before, um, on the podcast, but like, it was very freeing for me to come to the understanding that it's very radical, but that laziness does not functionally exist. Yeah. That there's always some kind of reason, whether in my case, it's energy. A lot of times for a lot of people, it's wall clock time. For me, it's not wall clock time. I watch three fucking full let's playthroughs of Spelunky 2 over the past like two months. Like I have a whole lot of free wall clock time where I'm face down in bed staring at my phone and I have to be there for recovery. And that's just the way that certain things in my life work right now. And it's on a track to getting better because I now realize that it's, um, it's very likely I have like diabetes. And so I need to be managing my blood sugar a lot better. Sure. But, uh, and it's actually more damning, right? And this is also why I say that like IQ doesn't exist and like intellect doesn't really exist in a meaningful way is that it's actually more damning on the other side of that radical thought. Because when you don't give people the out of being stupid or when you don't give people the out of being lazy, you then have to figure out why they are not doing what they are doing or what you think they should be doing or what society thinks they should be doing. And so uh, in one way, it is very radical and the people, a certain kind of person would say like, oh, you're just giving everybody an excuse, right? But then on the other hand, it's like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is much more damning. I'm saying that like, if laziness does not exist, then it means that there could be some reason we can figure out why we are not as productive as we want to be, why we are not as smart as we want to be in certain situations, and so it's like, and I realize that might not be the correct path either, that that's also very radical. But I will, I'll say that like having gone down the, that path over the past few years as I've become less able and I know it's not because I'm lazy, that like that's where I've been drawn toward based on a lot of people in the disability community, based on my own understanding. And so like Casey, I would, I would like put that back to you that like if you could think about like there are simple things that you can identify that like, oh, I just got distracted with this thing or whatever. But like if you just sort of take laziness out as a potential concept and say like, here's why I was demotivated maybe or not doing that thing. What would that be? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, a good, a good thought exercise. I, I definitely think about that. Sometimes it's not super clear. Like exactly. Yeah. I have like what I would what I, I refer to as undiagnosed ADHD. I don't actually know. I think it's ADHD. And the way that presents for me is that I will have things that I want to do and I'm sitting there kind of staring at them and then I just don't do them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's relatable. Uh, so you yeah. might also have <laughs> undiagnosed ADHD. Uh, and the way I accomplish things anyway is I, I, I am selective about the kind of things that I uh, force myself to do. But I just have a bunch of coping strategies for like, here's how I get things done. And a lot of it is like, for example, if I'm excited about something, like do that thing immediately because that's how I get things done. Yeah, that's how I get the weekend things done is uh, the excitement is it, it, it can last for 48 hours. No problem. Yeah. That notion of like staring at something that you say that you want to be doing, but then just not doing it rings rings very true. I, I actually... um. 
I've, I've consumed a fair amount of, of, uh, literature you, you could probably describe it as like self-help type literature on you know like there's the the classic book getting things done uh by david allen and a whole bunch of other things in that kind of like general i don't know genre of like how yeah. to you know successfully manage projects how to make a good to-do list that sort of yeah. thing I, and, and if you if you think you have adhd you should be looking for those that are specifically for people for neurodiv- yes. neurodivergent people, because like, otherwise you're going to get advice like, oh yeah, if you see a small thing that needs to be done, just do it immediately. Yeah, just, every time. just do it. <laughs> just do it. Duh. Yeah. I just, I actually, I watched a video course pretty recently. I think it was actually just before Pico's demo. And I'm not, I'm not going to name it or name the creator. Cause I'm not here to like call anybody out specifically, but like the subject of the course was basically like how to get your side projects done. And like the, the, guy who made the course had done a bunch of work in video games and was like, you know, project manager type guy. And basically the the content of the course was like, well, you write down what needs to happen to get your project done. And then you break it up uh, and you, you know, you figure out how long that's going to take and you put it on a calendar and then you do those things every like, oh, it's Tuesday. And you said you need to draw this art on Tuesday. So it's Tuesday. So draw that art. I mean, that shit like is a thing. Like that's a, this is, I think a separate thing for me. A lot of the time when I am having trouble, like proceeding on a task, a lot of the time it actually is because I, I haven't taken the time to break up, break Mm -hmm. it up into subtasks and I don't know where to start. Yeah. And that actually can help. That stuff is real, right? Like, yeah, de- definitely they're, they're, I mean, a project manager is a real job and people are are varying levels of good at that job for sure. But th- this course, I was just laughing this course because like you go read the testimonials and it's like, oh my God, you've opened my eyes. You've changed my whole life. And I'm like, this is the first time you've encountered the concept of a to-do list, I guess. Like just, just do stuff <laughs> forehead. Like, right, uh, yeah. Yeah, and um the the thing about that kind of stuff and Jim, you, you mentioning like not breaking things down. We had like performance review at my work and somebody that I am training called me out and was like, you don't delegate. And I was like, you're right. I don't delegate. And she's like, yeah, I was able to do this, 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 and this for you, this cycle, because I just took it from you and I did it for you. And I explained to her that like the reason that she was able to do that was because I hadn't actually broken any of those tasks down into component pieces that any of which she could do. Like in my brain, it was all chunked in terms of like getting specific things done. And yes, she could have contributed to all of those things, and but I hadn't chunked them in a way that allowed her to, to contribute. But then also there's just like brain tech of like, when you don't know how you're going to do something, especially if it's like anything creative, and I I'll, I will put technical things in the creative for this point, that like when you have an unsolved technical problem, you kind of just need to think about it for a long time. And so I started to really value my time where I take walks and I'm not at my computer and I'm not, act, I don't actually look like I'm working because what tends to happen is that when I take that time, I come back to the computer And I I complete whatever it was in like 10 or 15 minutes because I spent all of that previous time thinking about it. There's a a guy, the the guy who designed the closure programming language, Rich Hickey, uh, calls that hammock time. Yeah, or shower time. Like, Well, and and I think the reason it's called shower time is that for a lot of people, that's the only time they're not looking at their phone because they can't because it's wet in there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I've definitely seen 
exalting of showers specifically, not as like a category of thing where you're letting your your diffuse mode brain do stuff, but specifically it's showers that is like, oh, that's that's where the magic happens in terms of good ideas and solving solving puzzles and stuff. And I'm like, is it? I don't think it's specifically showers. It, it may just be that's the only time you experience that mode of thought. Yeah, I, I certainly find it very difficult to just like sit and think. I want to be actively engaged with something. I certainly can't do it at my computer desk because if I start to drift into a more abstract mode of thought, my hands will just like open a browser tab and pull up Reddit or Twitter or something yeah. like that before I even realize what's happening. Yeah. Uh, sis, before the show, you had, there was something you had wanted to bring up that we fit slotted into this topic. Did you already cover that? Oh, no, I had covered that. I just want to say that like um, the stuff that happened, I think it was Corey that put together Butter Dorks in Pico 8. Uh, it wasn't part of Pico Steve Mo. But I think it might have been the inspiration for Pico Steve Mo. Yeah. I think, that... Yeah, I think it was definitely part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was really incredible to see happen because it was a, a case where somebody was, you know, I want to get into something. I want to do something I don't usually do. And then they put together something and then it was ended up being like really good. And then they, they also managed to like feng shui all of, I'm going to, I'll park this as like social media. I'll just say that like the podcast they listened to, they got people involved from the podcast they listened to and everybody else liked it too. And it was really good. And we all decided like, Hey, this is great. And uh, that was really amazing to see. And I'm really glad that that exists because uh you know butter dorks and rain dorks and you know as casey was pointing out like there's a lot of stuff in the pico steve mojam from people who are like people who have done game development before people who have done technical projects before people who had extra time that was really great but it's also nice to see people branching out in ways that uh, are really great and get noticed and they're not getting noticed because they happen to know the right people it's that like they did a bunch of like clear technical work and game design work. And that's all really valid. And that that's the entire reason why I feel like I could ever interact with like the topic Lords community or be involved with like indie game dev is like, I don't have a bunch of titles on my resume. Like I've not done like a ton of it, but I do really appreciate the sort of, uh, it's not outsider art because there's no way to be an outsider to indie game dev because it's all outsider, right? But like, <laughs> I'm just really happy to be able to pull more people in. And I'm really glad that that had a lot of success. Yeah. It, Butter Dorks, I think is really inspiring. I do want to point out that like, I or to the, to the point that it wasn't that he knew the right people. I think it, a big part of it was actually that he was in a supportive community. Yeah. 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 And, and supportive both in like, both in terms of like, we played your beta and it's cool. And also like, here's how you do a thing with programming or in Pico 8. Actually, I don't know what this is like. If for like a complete novice, how do you find a good community can be a very hard uh, problem to solve. Yeah, the whole uh, you need expertise to evaluate others' expertise problem. Right, yeah. I mean, But on the other hand, if you're listening to this show, join the Topic Lords Discord. We're experts in many things it, there. It, it is true. It's a good. It's a good group of people. Yeah, you need somebody that's going to like take your hand and say like, I know that you are not expert on this. I know you feel like, and this is not maybe Corey's case, but like there are certain times in your life where you're like, I don't think I can do this thing. And somebody tells you like, no, 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 you can do it. Here's how you do it. And then they sort of like 
lead you along a little bit and then you're able to do it. And for me, like that was academia. Like Mm -hmm. I was good enough at programming to where I was able to learn the biology. And they told me like, don't worry about it. You have advisors on the biology pieces. You're good enough at the programming. Just work with us. You're going to be fine. And it was fine. And it worked out. And, but it is like, if I tell somebody else like, Hey, just get into academia, they're going to like pump you up. It's like, no, that's not how academia works. That's not how anything works. (laughs) Right. And I think the point there about like community is true that like the better that the community around you is that the more you're able to do that kind of thing. And so, yeah, like the, the fact that the TL discord was there and probably the insert credit discord was there was probably meaningful for sure. Having uh, spent a lot of time with a lot of different programmers, I wish that more programmers had more self-doubt about other things the way that you have just described <laughs> outside of programming. <laughs> I feel like I feel like a lot of programmers uh, get good at programming and then they're like, well, that's the hardest thing that humans can think about. So I'm probably pretty good at everything else now, too. That is a, a pattern that I've seen. Yes. Yeah. And it also taught me all the lessons of the universe. Like I know everything now because I know programming. Like, yeah, I, I either I either already know it or I can d- derive it with uh, a trivial amount of effort. I'm just like, no, I've learned to distrust computers. It's a, that is an important thing to know. Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yep. Uh, my topic is someone sent me money on Venmo, and now I need to sign up for Venmo if I want to have the money. I, th- I think it was a friend. Like we each have kids, and we were watching. The, I was watching the kids while they did something else. And I took them to see a movie uh, that was, was, this wasn't like impromptu, like, let's go see a movie. It was like, the movie starts at this time and I happen to be watching them. So I got them into the movie theater and paid for their tickets, et cetera. Then she reimbursed me on Venmo. I I don't have Venmo. Did the Venmo message include a clapboard emoji and a popcorn emoji and a child (laughs) emoji? (laughs) I don't remember. But yes, that would be appropriate. But apparently you can just send money, and this is true for PayPal too, I know, to just send it to an, I think I think in the case of Venmo, you send it to a phone number, and in PayPal, you send it to an email address. So with Venmo, they, have the, they just text that number and say, hey, you've got money, come sign up for our service if you want to have it. And so presumably I need to like connect my bank account or something, or maybe I can just like reflect the money back at somebody else who already has done that. This feels borderline illegal. Yeah, well, the money just it, it. If I don't, if I never sign up, presumably it just Venmo just keeps it. Yeah, three three thirty but free thirty dollars. It's just ours now. Hmm. Yeah, my, uh, my bank just did, which is a credit union. They used to have a really easy uh, transfer, like money transfer between members of the credit union thing called MoneyLink. Uh huh. Uh, and it was great. And you just log on to their website and you did it. And it was, it was super nice. And you always had confidence that it was going to the right place and there were no fees or anything. The way people from Canada talk about it in the discord, they're like, this is just how it is for everybody in in Canada. Like you want to give somebody money. It just like something in the air. It just happens. <laughs> you just think it, you, you wish it. Yeah. Yeah. Like when there are services, it turns out you don't think about anything else you don't think about other kinds of situations yeah but yeah it should be illegal to do that it's not illegal like that's just sort of like but who should who should be in prison should it be my friend who sent me the? <laughs> no of course depends not. on I, which emojis she used right yeah yes. 
I think the child in the clapboard emoji is over the line. I don't, I think that there are rules about how long children can work on sets and we need <laughs> to respect that. We shouldn't be making child films, but uh, like the general thing, right. Is that like, you're, there's no way your friend could have known you didn't have an account. The, the service never told them you didn't have an account. Like that's part of the, the sort of con, right. Is that they let you send money to whoever, whether they have an account or not. Right. So that they can park it to get you to make an account. So in terms of who should be in jail, we should go down the list. There's Ronald Reagan, there's George W. Bush. There's uh, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> dig him up and then yeah, you know probably Clinton. Anyway, uh, but like it's just as part of the way that payment transmitting in the U.S. works. And I work for a certified U.S. payment transmitter right now. There are things that we do that are definitely not the norm for the industry that we do because they're nice things to do when you don't want to like defraud people. And there are things that the rest of the industry does that is very normal, that is bad. And I would say that sending you a thing that says like, Hey, make an account to get money from us is a pretty bad thing to do. And the reason it's bad is not just because it's like, it's, it's like vulture capitalism stuff, right? Like, Hey, make an account on our service, get money. But then also like it opens a whole raft of phishing shit. Just like you are sending a message oh, that sure. somebody from your org is going to be like, pay us money, give us a password, make an account, like do whatever you're going to get money on the other yeah. end of it, buddy, give us your bank account information. And it's like, no, that can never be a valid process for this. Like it should not be. There are a few things that I would trust less than an email in my inbox that said, hey, click this link and give us some bank account information to get 30 bucks. <laughs> right. But like in, in the US, because the banking is sort of privatized, we're trained to be like, Oh yeah, you need to talk to Venmo or you need to talk to PayPal or like you need to talk to like any number of third parties to like transfer money between FDIC insured institutions. It really fucks me up that Visa just gets a cut of every single transaction that happens in the country. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean that's a, that's, that's an that's incredible all... racket. That's yeah, outrageous. They they do al- almost nothing as a payment processor. And then also uh, I mentioned this in the discord, but like they have very puritanical standards and practices about like what kind of things they will allow you to be a payment processor for. And it's not just like, Oh, we don't want to be used for prostitution or drugs. It's like, if anything shows nudity, it's gotta be like super nailed down. It's gotta be like MPAA rated. You gotta like, it's not, they don't have any good, standards for it. It's just like, if you're a large enough US company, you can get them to do it. And if you're a European company where you have pornography on your service, it's going to be no. And not for any great reason. Like, I'm like, yes, there are a lot of dodgy porn sites. Yes, that is true. However, many porn sites have insane terms of service that they dictate very specific sexual acts you are allowed to do. And certain ones you're not allowed to do. And it gets weird very quickly. And it all stems from Visa like and MasterCard. That what they're willing to like support in terms of being a payment processor for, they do this. And then when you ask them, they're like, yeah, we do this because of U.S. laws. And then you're like, well, what U.S. laws? And they're like, well, 
you know, pornography is kind of like not fully legal, right? It's kind of a gray area. And it's like, yeah, but this gray area allows you to exercise a lot of control. So it it is super creepy that Visa and MasterCard get, just get to like dictate standards and practices on all sorts of services. Yeah. And they basically own the concept of money. So like if you want to make a transaction, you have to play by their rules. Right. But, you know, we don't live in a hellscape where the U.S. government controls digital currency. So I guess there's that. Everybody should just move to Canada. Every single person in the world should live in Canada. It's pretty big, right? Yeah. We, we could go there. Lots of lots of space. Lots of space that no one wants to use. The U.S. Midwest is already basically Toronto. Like you can't. There's a lot of shared culture. Yeah, we've got the cocaine mayor. Oh, we don't know. Actually, no, that's that's all Canada. They're freehanding. <laughs> okay, all right. Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yeah. Uh, for this topic, we're going to be doing the poem Farmyard Song, which seems to be a traditional, uh, but also it's credited to Aaron Copeland. Maybe he maybe he put it to music. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can talk about this a little bit. I am the one who submitted it. Well, first we read the poem, then you talk about it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Would, would you like to read it? Uh, sure, I would love to. Okay. Um, so I, I will be reading the version that, uh, since it is a traditional, there are many versions of this. The The one that I am reading is the one that Aaron Copeland uh, set. Uh, all right, here we go. I bought me a cat. My cat pleased me. I fed my cat under yonder tree. My cat says, fiddle I fee. I bought me a duck. My duck pleased me. I fed my duck under yonder tree. My duck says, quack, quack. My cat says, fiddle I fee. I bought me a goose. My goose pleased me. I fed my goose under yonder tree. My goose says, qua, qua. My duck says, quack, quack. My cat says, fiddle I fee. Uh, I'm going to elide a little bit here. You, I think you kind of get what's happening. It's a cumulative song. Uh, so rather than uh, 20 more minutes of adding lines, I'll just jump to the end here. Okay. I bought me a horse. My horse pleased me. I fed my horse under yonder tree. My horse says, nay, nay. My cow says, moo, moo. My pig says, griffy, griffy. My hen says, shimmy shack, shimmy shack. My goose says, qua, qua. My duck says, quack, quack. My cat says, fiddle, I fee. That wasn't the last verse. You didn't do the last one. That was one. not. You got to read the last one because this is the one I want to talk about. <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. I didn't scroll down all the way yet. Okay. Uh, okay. Here's here's the slightly more problematic actual final verse. <laughs> I got me a wife. My wife pleased me. I fed my wife under yonder tree. My wife says, nag, nag. My horse says, nay, nay. My cow says, moo, moo. My pig says, griffy, griffy. My hen says, shimmy, cat, shimmy shack. My goose says, qua, qua. My duck says, quack, quack. My cat says, fiddle, I fee. What are you trying to say, Aaron Copeland? What are you trying to say about your wife? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know uh, anything about Aaron Copeland, the man. So I don't know if he had, <laughs> like, was he a raging misogynist? I'm not sure. Well, that's the that's the fun thing, right, about uh, former times is that you don't have to be a raging misogynist to engage in what is now considered like pretty clear misogyny of com comparing your partner to barnyard animals that you buy. Right. Yeah. He store. may just have been standard 1950s man. Right. Like. Yeah. Just, just swimming in the water. Like what if we try to approach this and be like, maybe he was like, I consider my wife to have value. So therefore I am better than all these other people. She has as much value as all of my purchased barnyard animals. 
And so in some ways, no, I, I don't think that that's the case. I think that that's bullshit, but I just wanted to like go down a road where mm-hmm. we, we were in some ways kind to this. It's definitely so. possible. The other thing I don't know, I, I could have probably done the research to find the answer to this, but there are many versions of this uh, written down, some from England, uh, some from America. The one that Copeland said is from Kentucky, I think, but I didn't see the wife stanza in any of the other versions. So I I kind of suspect that Copeland added that, but I actually don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Now we got to do psychology, right? To figure it out. Yeah. I'd like to point out. So I just uh, watched a let's play of, of uh, Basil's adventure, which is a, a game I made for my wife in 2016 is like a, as a Christmas present. And it's about a dog exploring a cave. Basically the let's play was, had commentary in Japanese, which meant that the only thing I understood that they said was when they said Juan Juan. Ah, yeah. Which is the onomatopoeia for a dog barking, which is ridiculous, but also because dogs don't say Juan Juan, but, but I don't have (laughs) any, any leg to stand on when we live in a culture where cats say fiddle I fee. Yeah. Or the hen says shimmy shack, shimmy shack. I don't, I don't even know how you get there. Yeah. Do you know about like, uh, so the Juan Juan thing actually comes from a time where the onomatopoeia for dogs was bow wow, which we accept, but nobody <laughs> under actually, actually understands. Right. Right. Uh, and so it's, it's a weird sort of cultural kind of, um, we need to come up with something as ridiculous as the Americans have. Right. Yeah. But then also Japanese just has a lot of onomatopoeia, like more right. so than English. It's, it's split actually between words that are representative of actual sounds and words that are representative of feelings. And there's a split mm-hmm. in Japanese between the two that is less clear in English because in English, both of these are called mimetics, but they're mimetics for different reasons. And so bow wow is a feeling mimetic for dogs. And then woof woof is the sound mimetic for dogs. And in Japanese, this is split between uh, gitaigo, which is for the feelings, and giongo, which is for the sounds. And so you have like my uh, my wife frequently tells me that she wants all of our stews and and soups and sauces to be pasa pasa, which is a, an onomatopoeia for meaning that she wants them to be watery and not thick. And it doesn't make any sense in English. We would just use I'm gonna I'll, I will I'll make a value judgment. I will say that in English we want to use proper words for those things. But <laughs> in Japanese, the most natural way to say them is to use onomatopoeia or not really onomatopoeia, but gitaigo. So feeling onomatopoeia. Hmm. So when you say feeling, this is, this is something that I'm, I'm not sure I get. You were making the distinction between two different kinds of dog barking onomatopoeia. Can you dig deeper into that for a second? Yeah. So like there's a, there's a kind of onomatopoeia that we have that is for things that make a sound Right. that we're, we're, we're trying to mimic the sound. Like when we say like a, like something explodes and we're like, Bang! Like you say that in a way where you're trying to recreate the sound of the bang, right? Yeah, yeah, I get that. But then there's other onomatopoeia, and this also does exist in English, but much less so. And it's kind of like how in the old Batman like TV series or the old Batman uh, comic series that you have the the panels that say like "pow," right? Your fist doesn't make a "pow" sound when you punch somebody. It's a very soft thud, right? Like, right? And you know that. But you know when you look at the Batman or you watch the Batman 
and you see the fist and you, and you see the pow and the star or whatever, you know that that is the impact of the punch. And so just imagine a language where half of all of the automatopoeia were actual sounds and then half of them were more like that pow case where they don't actually make anything that resembles the sound, but they exist and you understand them to invoke the feeling of the action or the quality so, of the thing. Yeah. I feel like because I've only ever thought about onomatopoeia as sounds, I just think of them as like, it's just more of a stretch. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Yes, definitely. Okay. Mm. So would you say, I would say like uh, in this poem, like a hen saying shimmy shack, shimmy shack. I could see like shimmy shack. Yeah. That's like, it's like a hen, you know, uh, right. it's like the feeling. Yeah. Of maybe that, maybe that kind of evokes like the, the way their heads move. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I think English used to kind of be more like this, especially in poetry and things like that, that I think some of these are not actual onomatopoeia in the way that we understand them in the modern English way, but they're trying to evoke the feeling and movement of the animals. Like Aaron Copeland didn't think that's what these animals actually sound right, like. Exactly. It's yes, like this, yes. this is the feeling of, of that. Right. He didn't think that's what his wife sounded like. Maybe. Maybe it's, we don't know. Did he even, was he married? Did he have a wife? I don't know anything about Aaron Copeland. Yeah. I was, I was on his Wikipedia page trying to figure that out. The word married does not occur. Spouse does not occur on this page. Well, you know, you can you can write outside your subject area, you know. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did he have a farm? We don't know that either. As a person that's pretended to be a straight man, I'm familiar with this. <laughs> uh, so anyway, this um, the reason I know about this poem is because the song set by Aaron Copeland is a, it's a pretty good song. It's it's enjoyable, an enjoyable listen. Copeland was homosexual, according to this. Sorry, go on. No, that, that was the whole no, thing. That's good. We can't have any comment on it. There's no there's no good comment on that. So Okay, good. <laughs> I'm not going to riff on uh, his sexuality. Uh, yeah, no, anyway, the, the song, there's a nice little uh, song for uh, baritone and piano uh, version of this that, again, I don't know anything about the history of it, so I don't know if it is just a straightforward setting of what the folk song sounds like or if he totally made up his own melody for it. I, I don't really know, but it's a fun listen. Does it does it try to do like uh, the equivalent of onomatopoeia, but with the instruments? It varies by performer. Some singers really lean into the sound effect stuff, and some do kind of more like what I did, where you just kind of read the words as they're spelled. Right. I think it's sort of like how um, how self confident is that singer feeling? Uh, are we ready for another topic? Sure. sure. Uh, Casey, your your topic is we've been to, we've been subscribed to Universal Yums for over a year now. And the sweet snacks range from unremarkable to unbelievably great to not my cup of tea, but interesting. Whereas savory snacks are mostly bad. What's going on there? Yeah, what is going on there? So if you don't know about Universal Yums, it's one of the subscription boxes that survived the after the culling, I think in like, what, 2016 or something. You couldn't walk outside your house without running into 46 different subscription boxes being right. advertised on podcasts and whatnot. You need like eight Rubik's cubes. You need like snacks. You need like anime from Japan, like IRS documents. Yeah. Underwear, socks, yeah. shaving gear. I think some of those are still around actually, but universal yums is a subscription box uh, in that vein that is active. Yeah. This I, feel, year. I feel like the, the ones that, that send like non-perishable foods are like the most sensible of the subscription boxes. 
Yeah, because it, it's, you know, you always want more snacks, right? Like, yeah. at a certain point, you're like, I'm good on underwear for like, I don't know, a half a year or a year or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Subscription for laundry detergent. <laughs> oh, there's an idea. Right, but Amazon did that. You can set up a, a subscription for anything on Amazon right now. So, like, we just get, oh, yeah. like, toilet paper delivered, like, on a schedule. And if I don't shit enough, like, we're backed up on the toilet paper. So to speak. Have you, you, you guys remember the dash button? Yes. Apparently those got discontinued in 2019, but, like, the idea was that you could have, it, it looks like they were magnetized. They were. You could put them on your fridge. Right. It would be like, here's one for Clorox wipes. It's got the Clorox logo on it and it's a button and it's connected to your Wi-Fi. and you just push the button and it orders you some more Clorox wipes on Amazon. Oh my God. If you put it too low on your fridge, your four-year-old comes your up. Your toddler, and- <laughs> toddler finds it and you, you have just an entire semi-truck of Clorox it's wipes. It's completely built for people who have kids and also do not have kids. Right. I wonder if I could get an Arnott's mint slice. Uh, well, no, you said they're discontinued. So, yeah, fortunately not. Now you got to use an Arduino. <laughs> Make your own, a little homebrew. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's what I did for the Frog Fractions 2 ARG. There was a little button that said launch FF2 and you pushed it to launch FF2. Did it work? It it did. The way it worked was that I, I waited for someone to upload a video of themselves pushing the button. <laughs> so sort of a, a human in the loop, I think they call that. Yeah. Kind uh-huh. of automation. Mechanical Turk style. That's actually like really good standards and practices. Like I <laughs> I can't, like I work in corporate security where I like put together processes for shit. And like half of the shit is like some random manager requests an account to be deactivated and it's not actually in our org and we can't do it and we shouldn't do it. And if we do it, we're going to have to, I'm in this boat right now, spending two weeks writing a security response to somebody deactivating an account they shouldn't have deactivated. And so like there are the ways in which when you implement something in a way that is fundamentally for yourself, I'm not saying that I think this Jim, but that for yourself, you think is like, this is really stupid. Actually, it is the best practice for security in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, having somebody actually make the decision. Yeah. So, so Casey, how do you feel about savory snacks in general? Uh, I love them. I am actually I'm a savory snack preferer most of the time. I don't have that much of a sweet tooth naturally. Although I think maybe uh, a year and a half of Universal Yums has changed that a little bit. I feel like <laughs> I don't know. I, I eat more sweets these days, but. Yeah, I don't know. I love savory snacks. And maybe that's part of why. So I don't think I finished describing Universal Yums, but you've probably intuited it by now if you didn't uh, already know the service. But every month you get a box of snacks from them and their gimmick, their their hook with it is it's um, snacks from around the world. So every month's box is a selection of snacks that they feel are representative of one particular country. And it's pretty fun. They do. They give you a little booklet that comes with it um, that describes each snack that's in there. And um, there's little illustrations and, you know, it's pretty fluffy. Like, I mean, I think I think the writing is it's not like they have a a staff of researchers or anything. It's like somebody hopped on Wikipedia and dashed something off in five minutes for each snack. But anyway, it's it's a fun little thing. And my partner and I make a little thing out of it. It's like, it's something we look forward to every month. But the 
savory snacks that come in the universal yums boxes suck they're almost all really bad and the sweet ones are either interesting or just good or or good and interesting so i was i was subscribed to universal yums for a while and i remember like things like ketchup flavored potato chips yeah that's a good example because it's like ketchup flavored potato chips that's not a bad idea right like that could be a good snack but then what do you mean idea that's canadian well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Canadian no, I mean, culture. They, ex- <laughs> they exist and there are good ones. But the brand that they put in the Universal Yums box is like bottom of the barrel. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Th- I mean, my theory was going to be that their sweet snacks are resold and that their savory snacks are homegrown. That it's just easier to repackage a bunch of sweet snacks and then have to make the homegrown than the opposite way. And I have literally no experience or evidence to say that that would ever be true for any reason other than I find that in the supermarket as well. That just like Mm. in general, there's a whole bunch of sweet stuff. There's not there's some savory stuff, but like not a whole ton. And a lot of it is like not great. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I, I had a couple of theories about this as well. And and one of them was, Jim, you were kind of getting at this. I am more of a savory snack that's what I reach for typically when I'm feeling snacky. And so I wonder if maybe my, maybe it's a personal thing. Like my standards maybe are your, higher. Your palate is more sophisticated. Yeah. My, yeah. Yeah. My potato chip palate is, is too sophisticated for what they send in universal yums. Whereas my, my uh, sour gummies palate is unrefined because I don't, I haven't had a lot of them. Yeah. Whereas like my garbage, my, my garbage disposal mouth will just like, yeah, it's all good. I love a I love a shady potato chip. <laughs> the other thing that happens with their savory snacks is a lot of I don't know if it's just luck of the draw from when we've been subscribed or maybe it's maybe it's like the what what is that the like availability bias or whatever it is where it's like you notice a thing it's not necessarily that the thing is more frequent but you're you're looking for it so you notice it more. Oh yeah, I can't remember what you call that. Uh whatever that's called maybe maybe it's that but a lot of the snacks are made with liquid smoke also like oh sure they'll be like oh this i don't know smoked ham is very important in this culture so here's this ham potato chip and those <laughs> that's gross to me the smoked uh, liquid smoke just like it makes me feel like i'm going to throw up like one of my guesses would have been that like they're sourcing the cheapest snacks possible or like maybe these are like even like these are the the stuff that's about to expire that they the manufacturer had to try to get rid of and that it's just easier to get a good sweet snack going than a savory snack. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the, the, the worst sweet snack is, snack is still pretty good. Yeah, like sugar is just good. Like we we are, as humans, we are going to like sugar in basically anything. Where that falls down is that that's true of fat and salt too. Mm, yeah. I don't have any more sophisticated hypotheses or, or models about this. It's just, it's something that, that I've noticed. And, and my partner agrees also, as we've gone through these, these boxes, it seems like the sweet ones, if they did a version of universal yums, that was like just the sweets, I think I would switch our subscription over to that. Did, have you done the, um, I remember one year we did, we paid extra for like a, it was like a gamified Halloween pack of like, here's a bunch of sweets. And there was some sort of, there was some sort of gamification built around it. And the the idea being it was trying to be like the, um, the jelly bean flavors where like half of them are terrible. No, I missed that. 
it was all sweets. It was all like candy. Uh, and the only one that was actually not good was the one that was like this licorice flavored, like really salty, really licorice-y. And then some other, like, like cause I like salted licorice, uh, but then some other like ingredient that I couldn't place. And that was like inside of a, like a can, uh, like a hard candy that when it dissolves or when you bite down, like the, the, there's a, like an intense amount of flavor, like in a liquid inside. So you suddenly get a huge burst of what you, what it's just been hinting at up until, up until then. And la- that was the only one that like nobody wanted to eat. That sounds kind of like Salmiac or Salmiac. Uh... It, it, it was related, but it wasn't, I mean, like I like, I, I like Salmiac, Salmiac. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I like that stuff a lot. So like it's some, it's not quite there, but it's, it's definitely like in the vein of it. So, yeah, I think Harry Potter ruined those kind of like jelly bean type snacks (laughs) of like that was the first place that I encountered the idea that any of them would taste bad. And then everyone was like, this is a fun, whimsy, like whimsical thing that we're going to do now. And then so a lot of candies did that for a long time and still do that, which is like some of these taste bad. And just like I kind of, I kind of want the gummy bears that where they all taste the same and good. Yeah, like, I, yeah. I, uh, uh-huh. I only like eating things that taste good. That's the only kind of thing I like to eat. Yeah, you, yeah, you're weird that way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I definitely have a thing where, like, if if I don't like something, I will sometimes obsess over it. Like, if I eat a bad thing, I was like, "Wow, that was terrible." Let me really like get all the notes of how it, the ways in which it is terrible. I never do that for food, but I, I do that for movies and TV and, and also games. Yeah. I actually, like I said that, but now that I think about it, I'm not sure I do that for food. I like, but music, I love, uh, I, I mean, I've talked so much about, well, what was that? The one specific, uh, guitar, like Italian guitar, terrible guitar, Italian guitar song that I've, I've talked about on, about on the show. Like that, that one was, is like the Ur example for me. But yeah, TV and movies, another another great source of like, huh, this is bad, but in it, it is it bad in a new interesting way. Like I, I Do you ever find yourself getting angry at the at the perpetrator of the bad thing? Like if a bad song gets stuck in your head after a while, are you like you feel you're starting to take it personally? I'm just proud of them. Like you did a great job. You did a great job getting this thing stuck in my head. I never blame them. For me, it's more of like uh, an obsession kind of thing. Like there are movies I love that I have seen less than like, I really don't like the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings. And I don't know why, because those movies are really well made. Technically, they're well edited. Uh, They're not well paced. That's the worst kind of bad is when something is really good technically. Right. Yeah. Cause you could just be like, Oh, this is bullshit. Like I'm going to move on. But then when you're like, no, I, and so I used to like, when I was studying Japanese, I would watch TV while doing flashcards at a certain point and I needed long content. And so for a long time, it was like, okay, seasons of Mad Men, like extended editions of all Lord of the Rings movies, like whatever was like more than three hours I would put on to, to do the flashcards. Yeah. And this was what, like 2005 ish or something like that. So this was before, this was well before uh, like someone tries to beat every from software game without getting hit. Well, this is that same, like this coincided. So I moved to Japan in 2011, which was the year that dark souls was released. So um, the Twitch streaming of Dark Souls started that year, and my studying started 
in like heavy rotation the year before. And so, yeah, like it was, it was that, that period where all that stuff was coming online. And so I did that. I watched all, like a bunch of Dark Souls <laughs> playthroughs and I watched a lot of Mad Men and Breaking Bad and like the Lord of the Rings movies on a loop and uh, just like trying to, cause I had gone to school for film and I was like, I read these books. I liked them. I hate these movies. They're very boring. I don't understand what, why I don't like them, why they feel soulless. And uh, I just like, I need to figure it out, but I never ended up hating Peter Jackson. Like I like all of his earlier work and I think he's like a genius and still like I never was mad at him. And I don't know about how Jim feels about that, but like my thing is like, I never hate the person who makes it because for me, it's just like, like he said, it's just like this, like, wow, you really did a thing here. Like it, this is substantial. It's, yeah. it's an accomplishment. I'm, I'm trying to think of an example of me um, thinking a creator like made did something morally wrong, and I, I no, nothing is coming to mind. Mm. Oh, oh, right, just just like any video game with, with guns in it. <laughs> I feel like Game of Thrones is in that for me. I feel there are very key plotting mistakes made in the Game of Thrones TV show that I completely disagree with, and so I'm not obsessed with Game of Thrones. I've only I've, I've rewatched the first seasons, like the good seasons a few times, yeah. but I don't obsess about the later seasons because it's like, I know why I think it's bad. I think they made wrong decisions. Yeah. 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 I always, this is kind of tangential on that, but like, it, it's always struck me as strange. I mean, I, like, I understand the reasoning here, but like, I don't personally experience this when people say that a, like a later season of a show or a sequel to a movie or whatever ruined that thing for them. Like, Oh, season eight of game of Thrones ruined game of Thrones or like sequel trilogy of star Wars ruined star Wars for me or whatever. And I, I'm just always like, the the part that you liked is still there, right? Like one thing that can happen, maybe it was always flawed to begin with, and you didn't notice until the new thing was flawed, like had those same flaws, but much more so. Mm. Yeah, like certain earlier elements get recontextualized. So like everybody hated the second Star Wars prequel trilogy movie until the third one came out. And then a lot of people started saying that the second one was actually not that bad. And <laughs> the floor was so much lower than we thought. It happened in reverse because they hated so much about what got recontextualized in the third one that they were like, oh, actually, now that we look back on it, the second one here was like way less bad than it could have been. And then also we had there was so much promise coming out of it that we have to say at this point that like, if this had gone in a different direction, maybe we would, we would think differently. And I think that like uh lost as a TV show is a really great example of where it's never really fantastic at any point, but that it's completely defined by wherever the person viewing it thought it might go. And that whether or not they liked it depends on how open their mind was to where it actually went. Right. So everybody has like a different point in law. Some people are like end of season one. Some people are like midpoint season two. Some people are like, oh, the break in season three. Some people are like, oh, the ending was the thing that messed it up for me. But like that the recontextualization of earlier elements based on later knowledge, like I think was uh, my interpretation of what Jim was pointing out. Hmm. That makes sense. Uh, that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Uh, so said Kayfaber, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on X, the everything app, formerly known as Twitter. And uh, also 
you can find me on Blue Sky. Uh, I am at Cisset K. Faber. So if you think of yourself as a like uh, cisgender heterosexual uh, Faber, uh, so somebody who uh, knows wrestling terms, I don't like wrestling that much. I'm also not cisgender heterosexual, but like if you know how to spell all those things, you can put them together and you can make yourself a cishet K. Faber and find me on formerly Twitter or Blue Sky. But the best place to find me, as always, is in the Top of the Course Discord, where we discovered Casey. And I am very happy to have been able to mint a new lord here today. Oh, delighted to be here. <laughs> uh, and Casey, if this is only something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, as uh, Sis mentioned, the best place is the Topic Lords Discord. And uh, that's also the best place to find me online. I'm Basecase in there. Uh, I still have a Twitter account. Uh, it's also base case. I don't post on there anymore, but um, if for whatever reason you feel like sending me a message and you don't want to get in the discord, that is a way to do it. I'll get an email notification, even though I don't typically go to the site anymore. It's a good reminder, Jim, can you tell them how they might be able to get access to the discord Lords or the, sorry, discord Lords, the topic Lords, discord (laughs) server, new, new podcast idea. I guess I should like this. I, I cover this in the, there's like a 45 second spiel that goes at the end of every episode that no one ever listens to probably because I do. I do listen to it because I'm out on my walk in the morning when I'm listening and I have gloves on cause it's cold and I can't, right. act, yeah. I can't manipulate my touch screen on my phone. Right. Right. And then there's also the, some, the situation where like you, you finish a podcast and then you hit stop because the credits are playing and then you do another one of those and then the credits are playing and you hit stop. And so you have like a playlist of like 200 shows yes, <laughs> all queued up with just the credits. And so like, then the, like when you can't touch your phone, all you have, all you have to listen to is like 200 credit show credits of different episodes of a show. Anyway, that's a, that's a thing that can happen. Uh, yeah. So to get access to the topic lords discord, you pledge some amount of money on the uh, topic lords, Patreon, which you can probably find by searching for Topic Lords Patreon, I bet. And then after I add you to the uh, to the Discord, you can go ahead and cancel your pledge, and I w- I won't uh, fault you. Is that human in the loop again? That's right. Yeah, you can also be a lord. You know, we should point out. You know, Esper Quinn is a recently minted lord who yeah. edits the show, and so that I'm sure some of that money that is made to the Patreon goes to Esper. So almost all of it. I I, I just wanted to feng shui a, a, a plug to be like hey i like this show some of this money goes to this person who edits it and yeah uh, we should, just we should i feel like one. just recently did we pass a threshold where like not literally all of the money goes to esper that's a problem now for me i gotta re-rack you gotta gotta delete your pledge <laughs> my pledge has been gone for like three years because of the exchange rate and paypal oh, and oof. patreon being complete assholes to me as a person living in japan so uh, Oof. so I've been a degenerate, uh, well, I started contributing to the show via my presence That's rather right, than yeah. my pledge, uh, in some ways. Uh, and so I feel okay about it, but also words get into the discord for free. Yes, exactly. Yes. All right. Uh, thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having us. It was a great time. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed Lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. 
You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. And you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.